Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 277 with my guest, Hillary A. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's uh, it's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod. Dot com. Please go there, check it out. Um, you can fill out surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the show. Um, you can join the forum. You can read blogs. You can support the show financially, all kinds of things. Um, oh, I'm going to be in Portland. Let's see, this is going up on Friday the 13th. Um, so I will be taping um, Luke Burbank's show uh, Wednesday afternoon, the... I forget what the what the date is. Um, <laughs> I'm such an asshole. I'm so unprepared. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to to meeting Luke and uh, hopefully recording him as uh, as well. He's been a great supporter of this of this show, and I get to go to Portland. I love Portland. Anyway, um, I wish. <laughs> prepared enough to have information about going to see the taping uh i believe it's called live wire is the uh it's an npr show that that he hosts um and um yeah i'm uh i'm a terrible human being can we agree on that we do let's move on here's some surveys this is uh these are all uh struggle in a in a sentence surveys uh cathode ray writes about her depression. I am on one side of a glass wall trying to get my emotions attention to truly feel anything besides depression and anxiety. Boy, do I relate. Uh, or I should say, have I related to uh, to that one? That feeling of plexiglass. Uh, Lila 
writes about her overeating. Food is my anchor to the world. If I eat, I know that I still exist and can still feel things and can have relief from the cesspool of negative thoughts in my brain. A snapshot from her life. The other day during my break from work while I was eating my lunch, I found myself in this loop of negative thoughts moving towards a panic attack. So I went to a coffee shop for a muffin, then went to a different coffee shop and got another muffin, and then went to a local bakery for a donut. All so that the clerks didn't see, uh, the clerks, uh, so that the clerks that I didn't know working in these places would see how much I was eating. I could have read that better. Again, Paul, you're a terrible person. Um, and I've heard uh, many people, Lila, uh, describe that about uh, their addictions. I know people that used to go to three different liquor stores uh, because they were afraid that the person would uh, know that they had a drinking problem. So you're not alone in that. Um, and depressed and abused uh, writes, uh, her issues are depression, anxiety, uh, drug addiction, OCD and PTSD, and a snapshot from her life. She writes, I was in a locked ward at the county mental hospital and I was about 18 years old. I was sitting on my bed rocking, sitting on my bed rocking, and the tears were coming so steadily that it wasn't even like I was crying anymore. It was uh, like that was my natural state of being. It felt as though my soul was being slowly ripped out of my body. I was like that for a couple of hours, and I heard the school bell ring at the elementary school across the street, and I heard all the kids laughing and playing at recess. And I cried harder, because I wondered how many of the girls were being raped at home by their dads like I was. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone why hypervigilance I should try to do something I hate my kids seeing me like that I just imagine killing people I woke up with rats in my hair they warp reality am I losing myself or am I becoming myself I go back to bed hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house I was able to get myself out of Scientology put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old and you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage you know so i planned my suicide because you won't ask for help i'm asking for help i'm not pretending everything's okay i'm not trying to do it alone i'm really happy that i did it because a lot of good things have happened since then that, that option just evaporated and i'm not going to kill myself i don't think i have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants i'm here with uh, hillary a and um we're going to withhold your last name so you can you can speak more freely. And uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is you were raised in the uh, Christian Science Church. Right. And um, you did not have a good experience in it. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, acting but, like, I'm acting like I'm surprised. But you know what? I'm alive, which is a lot more than a lot of Christian scientists can say. I, I yeah. bet there are some really ugly, semi-healed bones of people because they they don't believe in going to the hospital even for broken bones right actually oddly enough that's the one thing you can do oh, is really? have a bone set i know why i don't approve yeah me either because it's all or nothing you know if you're weak and you need to go to the hospital for a broken bone go ahead but i say tough it out yeah walk on walk it off walk it off <laughs> so that was about the only the only thing that uh 
That and going to dentists, bizarrely. You were allowed to go to dentists. Probably because they couldn't handle people's bad breath. Yeah, or something. Or, or not looking, you know, not having great straight white teeth. I don't know. So dentists were okay. Um, eyeglasses sometimes. Um, sometimes? I have heard of people that grew up never getting an eye test and always wondered why the world was so blurry and why they couldn't see the board in school. That seems crazy to and me. And nobody caught it for for some reason. I'm amazed this wasn't caught in school, but I have heard people talk about that. Well, I would imagine there's there's a lot of people then that couldn't even get driver's licenses. Yeah, you'd think so. Maybe that's where it was discovered. Like, you know what? You need glasses and so, you're 20. So what percentage of people would you say um, that you knew never had an eye test? Well, the thing is, I never really knew many Christian scientists. I mean, it's such a tiny group, even today. Um, I didn't grow up with other Christian science kids. Every time I went to a Sunday school, I was usually the only kid in it, because it really is a dying religion and dying literally. I mean, people are just dropping like flies, and the kids are sort of fleeing from it, as I did. Um, How old were you when you broke? Uh, it was a slow, long process. I mean, I had questions starting probably around 11 or 12, where suddenly just it wasn't really making sense and nobody could really give me answers. Um, but I stuck with it. And then around 20 was the real, you know, I don't really think this church is doing the right thing. Maybe there's something to it. I know there's truth here, but I'm just going to kind of depart from the church and just go with what I think the pure thing is, which a lot of people do with their religions. They always think, oh, the church has it wrong. The organization has it wrong. But there's truth to this. And I'm just going to live that pure truth. Um, how, do, how do you mean that the church is wrong, meaning their individual church, not the religion as a whole? Or do you mean the uh, church of, both. of Christian science? Yeah, that somehow the modern organization of it is going away from the original intent, that sort they of thing. They want to go back even further backwards? I don't even know. I mean, there's no logic to any of this. I, I, I think I felt that I, I didn't feel comfortable being a part of this sort of dying church, but I felt like whatever the founder whose name is Mary Baker Eddy, uh, came up with, there was some like pure who's, who's truth the founder? to it. A woman named Mary Baker Eddy. Ah. Yeah, it, it came about immediately after the Civil War when there was a lot of death and misery and destruction. And uh, it was a ripe, ripe ground for new crazy religions. And, and she thought, <laughs> those soldiers that were spoiled with morphine, let's never see that happen again. <laughs> well, the thing is, she she didn't believe that there were soldiers or that there had been a war or that anybody was shot or anybody what? died. What? <laughs> I mean, Christian science is a basic denial of everything human or material or that we can see with our senses. That basically there's God and he's perfect and we're his perfect children, but we're just his ideas. That's a word that's used a lot, ideas, that we're not really in these mortal bodies. And that's the whole idea behind not going to doctors is basically if we just quote unquote know the truth and the truth being that we are perfect, we're not sinful, we're not sick, we're not dying. Uh, if we can know the truth of our true being, that we'll be able to heal as Jesus did. Now, the only problem with that is it doesn't actually work. <laughs> a minor flaw. And there's millions of testimonies out there in books and publications online, I'm sure I haven't looked, uh, of healings, of healings of cancer, of healings of all kinds of things, alcoholism, whatever, mental illness. And 
I genuinely believe that none of them are true. That it's this mass delusion that people may actually have recovered, but it wasn't because of Christian science. Oh, yes. I was going to say, because I do believe that there are people that, you know, the the comet that comes along of, you know, somebody that doesn't get any kind of treatment and just miraculously on their own gets better. But yeah, I have nothing to do with. Yeah. And that's one thing, too, is that most Christian scientists, especially people raised in it like me, have zero understanding of the human body and how it actually works or of illness and how it works. I mean, it was it wasn't until many years later, and I'm still way behind most people in this department, where I realized that, yeah, a lot of illnesses just kind of go away. <laughs> you know, I mean, there would be people in, in Christian science churches who would get up and give these testimonies of healing of a healing of a cold after a week. <laughs> you know, there's this apocryphal story of a woman who gave a testimony of healing kittens of blindness. They're born blind. <laughs> exactly. After just a few days, they open their eyes. Oh, my God. It's, it... So people are just ignorant of, of how the bodies work and how illness works. And I guarantee you, if, if recovery did happen, 99% of it was just what Time. would have happened anyway. Yeah. yeah. So give me some snapshots from, from childhood that you think? Well, probably the most painful for me is there was an episode when I was probably around 11 or 12, where I had horrific abdominal pain. And I don't know what it actually was. I mean, looking back now, it could have just been bad gas. I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I do remember lying in bed for a long time, probably a day, and just moaning with pain. I mean, just terrible, terrible pain and just sort of writhing around. It kind of later on, I was like, that was a lot like labor, actually. Um, it was a lot like that. And so I mean, we're in our little apartment, my mother and I, and uh, I'm, I'm just moaning and writhing in pain. And I, I can't even do what you're supposed to do, which is sit and read the Bible and pray for yourself and read books. Like, I can't even do it. And I just remember my mother telling me, Hillary, you've got you've to keep it down. If the neighbor's here, they're going to call the police and they're going to come take you away from me. Man. You know? So there was this constant fear in our family that we couldn't tell people how we really lived. And I couldn't tell people about Christian science, really, because somebody would come and take me away because nobody, quote unquote, understands, you so know, the, a, a real us against them. Yeah, yeah. And that's, it's definitely a big part of my personality to this day that, you know, everyone's out to get me and I'm against everybody and I have to, I have to be the contrarian all the time. And I know that that comes from that this feeling of a, there was zero community in Christian science. I mean, unlike every other religion I've ever heard of, there is zero community. You don't do good works. You don't go out and do charity. There aren't church functions. They don't even have weddings or funerals because, of course, we don't believe in any of that. So you don't, like, hang out with other Christian scientists. You just stay home and don't <laughs> take aspirin. Yeah. You just stay home and moan in bed and suffer horribly, you know? So for our family, for me, it wasn't just the tragedy of whatever you know, agonizing nights and days of illness that I had as a child and a young person, but it was the denial of it. You weren't even allowed to be in pain or express yourself or be unhappy or depressed or anything. It was always shut down with, you know, 
it's not real. You need to know the truth about this. It never happened. It's like you were raised by a religion that was the narcissistic parent. Yeah. And my mother is a raging narcissist, as are, I think, a lot of Christian scientists. I mean, she found it as an adult, so she wasn't born into it like I was. That is the, the thing that's the most amazing to me, is that somebody would come into it as, as an adult and say, this sounds great. It's amazing to me, too. And I've actually asked that question on a, an ex-Christian scientist Facebook board. You know, because I, I, I say I understand how, you know, those of us that are born into it, we knew nothing else. But how how on earth? And she was probably she was 30 years old. She wasn't 20 even. And your mom is a bright lady. Yeah. You're, you're, and your mom's like a jazz aficionado. Yeah. And- she's a hip lady. She's not some, you know, narrow minded, like country folk kind of person. I mean, she grew up in cities. She, yeah, very hip, very together very smart very funny how do we wrap our head around that what well i think she's got a personality disorder and this religion just completely fit it completely because it gives you the sense of being above everybody else of being special of being on to this supreme truth that other people don't know about it makes you this target you know, in Christian science, you think because you're onto this truth that all these evil forces are out to get you all the time. And in fact, you have to spend hours studying books every day to protect yourself from these evil forces. Is that hence the Christian science reading room? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where the books are. But we do this thing called the lesson. You know how I still say we I slip into that mm-hmm. sometimes. Um we, we do the lesson every day where you mark uh, parts of the Bible and then also the Christian science uh textbook which is called science and health that are supposed to correspond with the bible and it's a long lesson i mean it's probably 45 minutes to an hour of reading and you read this thing every single day and then they read it to you at church that sunday and that's all you do is study these these meaningless circular logic metaphysical phrases that don't really mean anything and you're just supposed to wrap your mind around it. We we had this friend growing up who was kind of out of it uh, at this time. And <laughs> she had the best joke about getting to church after reading this thing, the same thing every day, getting to church and saying, hey, this is the same shit we've been reading all week. <laughs> did it feel good to laugh with her about oh, that? Oh, it felt great. It felt great. When did you first start to realize that you could question it and laugh about it? That's a good question. Did I have a sense of humor about this? I probably did all along because we're a very funny family. I mean, we're very sardonic and witty and we love to make fun of things. So I I think, and that's the thing I miss most about my mother is that we could laugh about everything, including this. I mean, we could laugh about Christian science quite a lot, and yet it was still taken seriously. I don't know how that worked, but... Yeah. It it sounds so complex, your relationship to your mom and this religion and one through the other. Yeah, they're very intertwined, very intertwined. And we've had, we're not in contact. (laughs) We haven't been for about uh, almost 10 years now because of this. Um, Should I tell that story? Sure. (laughs) So... We, I felt like we always had a great relationship. In fact, I remember kind of feeling sorry for people who had that, oh, God, my mother kind of situation with their mothers. I was like, oh, well, we're not like that. I mean, my mother's great. We're best friends and she, we're just like each other. And 
we enjoy each other's company, you know. And what ended up happening, though, was I moved out here to California. She moved to Brazil, which is a whole other story, but she's she's down there now. And you moved here from where? From New York City. Okay. Yeah. And so we hadn't seen much of each other in a long time, and our entire relationship really consisted of instant messaging, because that was the only way we could keep in touch 10-plus years ago before there was Skype or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I had this bad habit of, as you do, going to your mother when things when you need comfort, you know? And you would think that I would have figured out, after a lifetime of never being comforted about anything... <laughs> ever and constantly being told that didn't happen you're exaggerating get over it you would think that i would have learned that but i didn't was she that way before she was in the christian science church with you i don't know oh how old were you when she got into it i was she was pregnant with me oh okay yeah so i don't know what she was like before um but uh i'm going to assume based on her age that she was probably that kind of parent <laughs> and would have mm. been anyway. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that kind of walk it off kind of parent. Um, so what ended up happening was around 2005, I had I had a huge, horrible tragedy, which was that I bought a fourplex in New Orleans five days before Katrina. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know Katrina was coming? No. Nope. It was like long enough before that nobody knew. And I signed the papers, and I didn't even have the keys yet. And and that just, I mean, I'm not going to go into the story because it's endless. I mean, this was three years of just pure hell, and I didn't even know just how bad it was going to get. But it was hell, and I'll be in debt for the rest of my life because of that. I mean, I'll never recover from that. Um, so that happened, and that was just so, so ridiculous. And you mean ironic. you didn't have a great experience with the insurance company? No. Can That's you shocking that? because everybody else did. <laughs> yeah, it was just me. Oh my god! Because the evil forces were attacking me. So (laughs) I swear to God, I don't know why I even have insurance because it just—it seems like everybody that I hear from gets fucked over by an insurance company. Yeah, yeah, and at least I wasn't alone. You know, in that little consolation. Yeah, little consolation. Yeah, they said it was termites that knocked the building over, and you know, stuff like that. So good times. We know they're reviewing some some of that. But I don't, I don't, I hope, I hope you get some compensation. I won't. It's okay. (laughs) Sorry about that little sidetrack. So that was horrible. So that was a horrible thing that happened and and caused years of unbelievable stress. I mean, I almost lost everything. It could have just been the worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, And of course, her response to that was, you know, it didn't happen. And I mean, she literally said Katrina didn't happen or I mean, I don't know if she said it about that. Um, but she did say that about the Northridge quake when that happened. <laughs> she said it didn't happen. And I agreed with her. So I was complicit in this denial fest really? that happened. Because that was early on enough that I was still yeah. kind of, yeah, you're right. It didn't happen. But I still have to find a new apartment. So I guess it kind of happened. How would she explain all the pictures on TV? It's all just part of the mortal dream. All of this, everything. Evidence. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. It's just mortal stuff, you know? We can we can transcend all of that by just knowing the truth. <laughs> wow. It is so much worse than I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. So so go ahead. So so, you, so the you problem buy- with people that have that kind of mindset, and it's not just Christian scientists, um, is that you lose all capacity for empathy and you lose all humanness. I mean, you just become this glassy, cold, uncaring 
person, which I think she probably always was. And the Christian science just really kicked it up a notch, you know. So so we had Katrina. And then shortly thereafter, I had this terrible run of bad luck where my car was totaled when it was parked on the street. And then my purse was stolen and Jesus. I became an identity theft victim. And that went on. And that all happened. Those two things happened within like a couple of weeks of each other. So it was just a bad time. It was just bad luck, you know. So I, I, I instant message my mother all this stuff. And she kind of goes on her thing of, you know, I think you're just being attacked because you, you're, you know, you're on, you've been exposed to the truth of things. And I think, you know, I've never heard of anyone have this kind of thing happen to them. So it must be just that you're special and you're being attacked by these forces. And if you would just do some work about it, that maybe you could turn things around. So it's your fault. Yeah, totally my fault. And I felt myself just sort of bristling because I had been told this for 35 years, you know, and just this anger just welled up. And I forget the details of our conversation because I really blocked a lot of this out. But I fought against it. And I, I finally, in that moment, said what I've been dying to say for years, which is, you know, I've got to tell you, I really don't believe in this stuff anymore. And I never said those words because I knew probably from the day I was born, that the minute I said those words to her, that she would find a way to completely cut me out of her life. And that's exactly what she did. <laughs> what happened was I was supposed to go visit her in Brazil a month later for Christmas, and it was a trip I'd been planning all year, and I had my ticket and my visa and everything. A couple of days after this conversation, which ended badly, um, she sent me this one-line email just saying, I'm going to have to tell you now that I think it's best if you don't visit me because... Your attitude towards Christian science is so toxic that I really need to look after my own health and my life. And I feel that if you're here in close proximity to me, that it'll endanger my life. And I need to not be close to you physically. So you can't come visit me. <laughs> and I wrote her back and I said, you've always chosen this religion over me. And I don't ever want to speak to you again. And that was it. Good for you. <laughs> That was it. And what, did, what did you think or feel in that moment when you read what she wrote to you and th through writing what you wrote back? Kind of walk me through that. Was there was there kind of an, a, an emotional progression there? Was it just like a door slam shut? What what? Well, what when she wrote me that, I felt just blind rage. You know, I mean, I get angry. Yeah, hearing, yeah, hearing that. I can't imagine what thirty-five years of being denied and shut out and going to the well and it's fucking dry. Yeah, yeah, and that was just it. I mean, that was the end of it. I just couldn't couldn't do it anymore. And ironically, you know, I think when I said those words to her, I don't know that I knew that I would just never speak to her again i thought well we'll probably resolve this somehow mm -hmm. and in fact a couple of weeks later i did sort of feel like you need to make this good you need to just eat it and apologize and just kind of try to move on and i'm glad i didn't because so i didn't go there for christmas obviously right before christmas actually on christmas she sent me the most hateful evil email <laughs> I have ever gotten from anybody telling me that I've always been at what did she call it uh, a, a 
emotional blackmailer. She's known this about me ever since I was a little kid. <laughs> That's what I am. Sounds like some serious projecting going on. Yeah, and went on and on just attacking my character. And the worst part is I have an older sister, and she said that she and my older sister have been talking about it and that my sister agrees with her. And, I mean, just a complete evil attack. And she'd never done anything like that. I mean, my mother, for all her faults, I mean, she never name-called or assassinated like that. She, I mean, she did a lot of things, but she never did things like that. I mean, we were always, as a family, very respectful, very kind. Um, there was no yelling. There was no fighting. I mean, that just wasn't what we did. So I remember reading it, and I, I do remember my first thought being, you know, that's interesting, because these are all the things I think you are. <laughs> it's funny you should say all that about me, because I've been thinking all this stuff is about you. So I was, I'm glad I was able to see that it was not me. It was all her projection, and she was just nailing herself into her coffin, basically. And I, I actually, I wrote a response which I, which I never sent, um, which said, "Okay, so what you're saying is that I'm bad. You've always known that I was bad, and that you and my sister have talked about how bad I am." <laughs> and I just went on like that, and I threw it out, and I threw out her email, and deleted it forever. Never read it again, you know. And I was hurt. I mean, I'll be honest. It, it it did kill me a little bit inside. I mean, when your own mother attacks you like that and tells you you're a bad person and you've always been a bad person since you were a baby, it's hard not to let a That's little harsh. bit of that in. That's hard. And be like, wow, my own mother thinks this about me. Have you ever mourned the loss of what connection you did have with your mom? Yeah, I mourn it every day. You know, because, it, again, it wasn't like we came out of this tumultuous, awful, hateful relationship. I mean, we were close and she was great. I still like her. <laughs> I mean, if she weren't my mother and none of this ever happened, we'd probably be the best of friends. You know, it's so bizarre. Yeah, that is so bizarre. But uh, so after that, there was a, a really ugly period of about two years where it was her and my sister against me. She had my sister completely brainwashed and it was really ugly and I pretty much lost everybody you know I felt because they were it I mean as you'll find out there's no other close family my father's a lunatic and I don't know him there's no other siblings your like, dad was never in your life hardly at all I last saw him in 1980 <laughs> so yeah they were divorced when I was about four he also was a Christian scientist by the way um had some visitation for a little while when I was probably around five and then he moved back to Brazil and I saw him once since then and that was it. So it's not like I have another parent to lean on or oh yeah. a normal one that I can talk to. It's like he's actually kind of worse. <laughs> he's actually a little more crazy than she is and we're, our contact has been extremely sporadic and, and unpleasant for you, all these years. You have anger at your dad? Um, not as much because there's nothing there. There's no relationship to be angry about. I mean, I kind of. But doesn't the absence? Uh, I don't know. When I, whenever I hear about when people share, you know, a parent that just walks out of a child's life and just doesn't bear any responsibility for it, I always just feel such anger, and I want. Uh, I just wonder, uh, how do you? How do you not be angry? Um, there's a little bit. Sure. I mean, he did abandon me. 
you know, and I've, I've accused him of that and I've asked him why. And as I think I mentioned to you, whenever I ask him real questions like that, he'll like send me a poem about a horse. <laughs> That's kind of how he deals with pretty fantastic everything. That's pretty um, fantastic. Because he's really, I mean, he's, I'd love to diagnose him as being possibly schizophrenic. I know mm-hmm. he was homeless for a little while. Um, he loves to spin fanciful tales. And I don't know if he's maliciously making them up or if he really believes mm-hmm. these things happened. Um, so it, it's hard to be angry with someone that's that ill. Yeah. You know, so that's mostly how I look at him and my mother. I mean, my mother has an actual personality disorder and she's always had it. And everyone knew except me and my sister, apparently, because, of course, once we both uh, got rid of her, everybody mm-hmm. said, well, you know, we've always known that <laughs> she's your a mother. Ha- yeah. Has so a you think it goes beyond problem. she's just not just she's a narcissist. You think she has narcissistic personality? I disorder. do. Yeah. yeah. I've read enough books on it now yeah. that if would they give a checklist of your if your parent did any, you know, Four out of these 20 things. I'm like, yeah, she did 20 out of those 20 things. Mm. So she has a a disorder. And it makes me feel better to, instead of just saying she's evil, which she's not, to say she's a a very ill person, you know, and she has no idea what she's doing. And like most narcissists, she's going to die alone, alienated from everybody because she did it. I mean, she's alienated almost everyone she's ever known, you know. So what happened then uh, for two years, you, you, your sister and your mom were kind of ganged up yeah. against you? Yeah, that was an ugly period for me because I was completely, completely alone in the world. And I did seek out therapy at that point. Um, I talked to, I found the only therapist in LA who does exit counseling, which is for people coming out of cults, because mm-hmm. I did feel like a lot of my issues had to do with that, or at least I needed to talk to someone who was familiar with being in a brainwashing type situation because mm-hmm. I really didn't think anyone else would get it. So I saw her for a few months and she helped me through a lot of the, the pain of that separation from my mother. Cause what I really needed to do was individuate from her. You know, I felt incredibly controlled even from thousands of miles away. I did not feel like I could be my own person. I remember at one point years before any of this happened, I felt so controlled that I actually typed out a sentence that said, you have a right to your own opinions and your own feelings and you are your own person. And I put it on my computer and I just looked at that every day because I didn't feel like I did. And I couldn't even articulate why. I just felt incredibly controlled, even though I'd moved all this way out here, even though she was all the way down in Brazil, even though we weren't in contact constantly. I mean, maybe once a week, maybe less. I still felt like this woman had this like vice grip on me, you know. That's one of the things that's so um, difficult in breaking ties with a with a parent if you have to is so often it's this really complex relationship where there were great things about them, fond memories, and yet also kind of this negative voice that they implanted in your head that you believe is the truth and it's so hard between the voice and the and the nice memories that you have to sever ties is so difficult yeah and i actually feel lucky that 
my circumstances are what they are because I have a lot of friends who have mothers just like her and they can't sever ties either because they live right near each other or there are grandkids involved and they want their kids to have a grandmother. And well, she's really great most of the time. But I mean, I have so many people tell me you're so lucky. You're so lucky that she's in another country. You never have to see her. You don't have to feel obligated. You're just free, you know, and I so I'm I'm very grateful that it went down the way it did, you know, as much as it was horribly emotionally painful at the time. At least I don't have this this force in my life that I just have to deal with and you know, and especially now that I have kids, I mean, I can't imagine the guilt I would feel cutting her off with kids involved yeah. that would know what was going on and wouldn't understand and Where's would wonder grandma? why and yeah, I mean, thank God all this happened before that, you know. Any snapshots from that period when you were seeking therapy and exiting the you know well i remember uh you mean about the therapy or just about yeah, that period yeah any anything kind of strikes out to you or s sticks out in your in your brain a moment that you had as you broke ties and in particular with therapy and your therapist. Okay. Yeah, there was one thing she said that stuck with me that was really great. Um, and she had a term for it, which you, you may or may not know. I can't remember what the term was, but it had something to do with, it was like the, the slot machine syndrome or something like that, where you go back to somebody expecting a certain result and you just go back over and over and over again and you never get that payoff. Hmm. But if you do get it just once... Which it's enough to keep you coming back. I would come back for decades off of one moment. That's what, of, that's what golf is. <laughs> one good shot and you're hooked for the rest of your life. Yeah. And that was so true of my mother because our relationship had very much become me going to her with problems and being really angry when she either denied it or sort of came up with these like things I could do to fix it. It's like, I don't want a fix. I just want to be heard. I just want you to say, I'm sorry, that happened, that sucks, are you okay? And she could never say those words, you know? In fact, I, I, the one time she was ever sympathetic to me was when I was uh, a teenager, and I liked some boy in school who didn't like me back, and I was all upset. And she's, I, I told her about it, and she said, yeah, but that could be really hard, you know? And I almost fell on the floor. I was so shocked. I mean, I had never, ever once heard her agree that I could have a problem that was a problem. Did it feel good when she said that? It was like a hug from Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it was the most incredible feeling to once have my mother say, you had something bad happen to you. And yeah, I, I understand. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Once in a lifetime, you know, just once. Because in her narcissistic mind, it was something she could agree, she knew about. Your poor mom just sounds so, in, just on her own planet. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know there's people listening, and, and I find myself, as you describe some of these things, getting angry with her, but I just have to keep reminding myself that she's sick. Yeah, and she's depressed and um, very lonely and, you know, she had these two children who don't talk to her now. My sister also had to cut ties with her after a couple of years because she just couldn't take the crazy anymore. And, I mean, how horrendous is that? I mean, that's my worst nightmare is ending up alone in a little apartment with my children not talking to me and dying. 
because she is sick. She's actually physically ill. She's been ill for probably two decades. We don't really know what it is because, of course, she hasn't been to a doctor. But I I would guess from what she's told me about it that she started with probably just a little urinary tract infection that was never treated and is now in her kidneys and is just shutting her whole body down. I've had we do have some medical people in the family who have seen her in the last few years. And they said, yeah, her kidneys are like on their way out, you know. Her teeth are rotting out of her head and her eyes are yellow and, you know, she's dying and she's just going to die this slow, miserable, painful death and clinging to this belief, you know, and she always says, as all Christian scientists do, she always says, well, I'm not after a physical healing. I'm after a, a spiritual, whatever they would say, you know, awakening or, or spiritual enlightenment of some kind. Why do, they, about the physical why do they have to be mutually exclusive? Um, because they're, they know they're not going to get a physical healing. <laughs> so they have to say something like that. I don't, I don't understand <laughs> the denying of the medical care because what is there? Almost, almost every religion that has a, you know, uh, something to it that's toxic, you can see that there's a power play in it where the people at the top are getting some type of payoff for it. You know, if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, the the, the things in the in medieval times, decisions that they would make, it was all about money or power or, you know. But denying medical care, I don't understand what the payoff is. What? Well, I think that shows just how delusional um, Mary Baker Eddy was. You know, How do you really spell her last name? E-D-D-Y. And I believe she was also a raging narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> that's why she came up with this fabulous uh, system. But yeah, there really, there isn't a, a, a payoff. There wasn't, I don't think there was some evil intent. This was something else that we discuss on the, the Facebook groups quite a bit is, do you think she was an evil cult leader who did all this purposely? Doesn't sound like it. I don't think so. I think she was just mentally ill, you know? And at the, look, it's the 1860s. I mean, most of the people who went to doctors died horribly <laughs> anyway yeah. in those days. So she was just offering this alternative um, that, unfortunately, once medicine caught up, people still would feel like, you know, in the 1970s, people would still think that medicine was like it was in the 1860s. Like, no, it's kind of advanced now. You can kind of <laughs> fix a lot of things pretty easily. I was just talking with my wife today at, at, at breakfast um, about, can you imagine the days before you were able to get put under when you would go for surgery? Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that certainly held a certain allure Sure, I don't For have to Christian, go through that. Christian science. Yeah. <laughs> Although I will say, I mean, I've I've suffered pretty awful pain in my life as a result of not being willing to take pain pills or not being willing to um, get checked out or get antibiotics. I mean, I spent in my early twenties spent at least two days off of work a month, writhing around on the bathroom floor in horrible, unbelievable menstrual pain, just refusing to take an aspirin. And I wasn't even really in the religion at that point. It was just such a habit. Even now, you know, this is 20 years later, even now, I'll, I'll walk around all day with a searing headache. And I'll say, fucking take a pill. Like, get rid of this thing. What's wrong with you? But and there's, like, a little, oh, yeah. there's a little part of you that wants to tough it out. Or just I just forget. Oh. It's not even that I think I can tough it out. I honestly forget that I can help myself. You're so like, oh, used yeah. to living with physical suffering. Yeah. It's just you just trudge along. Uh 
talk about what happened with your sister and your mom. Well, um, unfortunately, because my sister is the older sister and by 10 years and as a different father, um, she became the arm that my mother leaned on. Like they were always kind of in cahoots. And I'm not going to say against me, but they, they, my mother relied on her for a lot of things that she needed. She needed her affairs taken care of while she lived in Brazil. She needed business stuff taken care of. And, and she just foisted that all on my sister, borrowed money from her, never paid it back, things like that. Um, even saying at one point that we kind of owed her money for her having raised us. <laughs> what? <laughs> What? Which is another rather unpleasant episode. Uh, one of the many times my mother was flat broke some years ago, she, she, I forget if she called or emailed the entire family. So like her sister, her sister's kids, my cousins, and expected us to all sort of have this, give her this stipend every month, like of a few hundred dollars to support her. And I remember being so embarrassed by this that I called my cousins and just said, don't listen to this. It's just her being crazy. You have no obligation to her. But she just felt like the world owes her a living, you know, the world owes her, especially us, because she raised us. And now it's now it's our turn, basically, was her feelings that we have to support her financially in every other way. You should have you said, you're absolutely right. I will pay for all of your medical expenses. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. So my sister, unfortunately, got the burden of all of that, whereas I kind of ran away to L.A. and was always sort of broke and struggling. And so she didn't lean on me for things like that. Um, so when all of this stuff went down, uh, yeah, my, my poor sister was just burdened with all of my mother's crazy and just completely put in the middle and torn apart and um, felt like she had to you know, be against me, basically, for the first time in our lives. And it was excruciatingly painful, you know. Uh, but she came around, you know. She said that one day our mother was in Boston for some reason, and they went to a church service together, and my mother was just sitting there shaking with pain and rocking back and forth and reciting phrases. And my sister just said, this is crazy. This is crazy. I can't do this anymore. So she did the same thing that that I did. You know, she cut our mother off. She said, I, I need some space. I can't can't be in contact with you. And then went after the religion and threw out all of her books and papers and and everything um, and called me up and said, oh, my God, you've been right. You were right. And how often in life do you get that? You know, I mean, that I never expected that. I just thought that's it. She's gone. And I just have to let her go. And it sucks. But that's what did it. that feel like when she a hug from Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> it was the best. I mean, not only being told you're right. I mean, obviously, there was a little part of that that was great. But having her back and having a, a companion in all this again. You know, that is one thing about siblings when your parents are nuts. Hopefully. Oh, my God. I'm you can lean on them, hopefully. I know that's not always the case, but... So grateful. The conversations that I have with my brother sometimes about about my mom, it's so nice. Because a lot of times, you know, the, the narcissistic parent is so good at making it seem like you're the one who's being Crazy. unreasonable. Yeah. Um, it's so nice to have somebody else to go, am I fucking crazy or yeah, is this fucked up? It's incredibly validating, Yeah. yeah. And we also had a period after that happened where we just sort of started like vomiting out these stories. Any that you want to share or remember? Sure. Um, 
Well, one thing that I didn't realize, because, again, she's 10 years older than me. So she had 10 years of our mother in the 60s. And then when she was 18 and, you know, sort of went off, I had another 10 years with my mother on on my own. And she also got to experience your mom without the church. Yeah. Yeah. So pre-Christian science, although before Christian science, my mother was heavily into macrobiotics, which isn't as crazy, but it's another kind of kooky, you know, life thing. (laughs) I don't know enough about it. I know there's a lot of people that get get uh, a lot from it and believe in it. Yeah. So my mother, she's always been a seeker. You know, she's very Mm. much of that 60s generation, um, which I I think plays a big part of it, you know, Mm. um, as to why she's like this. But so she was heavily into that for many years before Christian science. So my sister got the macrobiotic part. And um, one thing that we compared notes on that I was shocked by was one of the things that I had uh, as a young girl was trichotillomania. I used to pull my eyelashes out. I didn't know that. And I did that for years. I spent my entire middle school with no eyelashes because I would just sit there and obsessively pluck them out. And my sister said, oh, my God, I did that, too. Really? <laughs> if there's some picture of her, she would pull her head hair out. There was some picture of her from, I think, first grade. So she was a bit younger than I was uh, with like a bunch of hair missing in the front. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I never knew anyone who did that, you know? I didn't even know it had a name until years later. Again, thanks to Google and, and all that, I, like hair pulling, and there it is. So how, that long, was how long did uh, your trichotillomania last for? Years. The worst of it was probably about 11 to 14. By the time I got into high school, it, it dissipated. And now I can't believe that I ever did that. I mean, I'll occasionally, you know, you'll put on makeup and an eyelash will fall out. And I'll think, how was that ever appealing to me? <laughs> you know, I can't believe that that used to give me such gratification. What would you feel when you would pull an eyelash out? Um, relief, as I think. Where would you feel it? Uh, it, it was a combination of guilt because I hated that I did this thing. And I was ashamed by it and embarrassed by it because it's something everyone can see. You know, people would kind of look at you and go what's going on there? Like, what's what's mm-hmm. up, you know? So there was a lot of guilt and a lot of shame about it. And of course, I prayed about it constantly to stop and never did. Um, but yeah, like like all of those things, like cutting, you know, all, the, all those sort of destructive things people do, it's just a way to externalize the internal pain, I guess. Right. I, I understand that. But I'm asking you, where where in your body would you feel relief? What did, what did, can you describe the relief I'm, I'm always fascinated when people describe a coping mechanism that they have. I want to know what it is that they feel in their body. Like, do you feel your chest open up? Do you feel warmth in your face? Do your arms relax? Uh, you know, what? Yeah, not really. I remember that I would feel like my eyelids were kind of itchy. <laughs> And I would just need to sit and pull all the eyelashes from a particular area of it, like from the outside or the inside or the middle, and that I would get relief from this this itch that was happening. Oh, okay. But then they would all be gone, and it would still feel itchy, you know? So it didn't... So was there a, there was a window, though, where it felt okay? Or no? Not really. Yeah. I would just sit there for hours and just pluck them out. Maybe and, it was just a way, just a way to distract yourself from yeah. your pain. And it was an anxiety thing. Yeah. You know, I had a lot of uh, anxiety. I still do. I mean, I, I definitely have a lot of anxiety issues. They're they're pretty under control now, 
but um, I would have terrible panic attacks. Um, and that was that was the most dramatic thing that I ever did. But yeah, panic attacks. I, I listened to an episode of yours where a guest talked about having a choking mm-hmm. panic where he couldn't swallow. That's what I have. Still? Yeah. yeah. Talk about that. Um, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it... It, and it's so odd because now it'll come about when I'm not even aware that I'm anxious about something where I'll just be plugging along happily and I'll just be eating something and all of a sudden I'll feel like I can't remember how to swallow and I'll panic and my throat will seize up and I'll just start like choking on the food. And when it first started happening, I would really panic and like spit it out or think I was going to throw up or something. And now it's kind of down to... I've learned how to talk myself down from it and just sort of like stop. This is the mechanation of how you swallow. We're going to do this, 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 and this, and we're going to swallow, and that's how it's going to work. <laughs> and so I have to do that with every bite of food and just be like, okay, we're going to focus. We're going to do this, 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 and this, and the food's going to go down, and you're going to be okay. And this will go on for like weeks or months, really, and then it'll just sort of go away. Wow. Yeah. And so if <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but if I'm ever at a restaurant and you see me kind of doing this, like putting my hand under my nose, yeah, that's me focusing on swallowing. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't choke, which I've never actually done, by the way. You never actually choke. You just feel like you're going to choke. And I just kind of accept it now. I mean, a big part of these kind of anxiety disorders is not letting yourself have that anticipatory anxiety about it so that when it does happen you're like it's okay we know what this is we've dealt with it before don't worry about it you know it'll go away like it always does yeah i heard a therapist say to somebody who experiences panic attacks is the first thing you have to understand is your panic attack will not kill you yeah which you don't believe in that moment right you know yeah i um i had a terrible uh i was in a lawsuit about 15 years ago where i was sued and um that was the worst of the anxiety that I've ever had in my life. I had probably about two years of like a constant panic attack because of that. And so I could barely leave the house. And when I did, I usually had to turn the car around and come home because I would start panicking and I would have to pull over and get out of the car and pace around and breathe. And uh, it was it was horrific. Where did you learn some of these techniques to, to deal with it through therapy? Um... Or did you just kind of come up with them on your own? I kind of came up with them on my own. Back then, it just sort of ran roughshod over me. It, it just sort of took over because then I was still a little bit in Christian science. So I I just, it didn't occur to me that I could really do anything about it. Okay. You know, it, I just would suffer through it. Like I suffered through everything back then. You know, I don't think I was taking pain pills back then either. So it wasn't until much, much later. It wasn't really wasn't until, I, as I like to put it, I jettisoned my mother, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was 10 years ago, that as soon as I did that, I had this overwhelming feeling like, okay, I've done that. I'm fucking going to be happy now. Damn it. I was so sick of being depressed and anxious and having all these dark things in my life. I was like, I'm going to I'm going to really just try to be happy now. And I knew that when she was in my life, I could never have done that. I could never have been happy with her in my life. And I still don't understand why that is. I don't know if it was a fear of like competing with her or her being jealous of me maybe a little bit if I were too happy around her too much. Mm -hmm. Like maybe there was a need to always be depressed for her. I don't know. I'm not really sure what that was about. But I, I did a lot of intense 
work after that point. I was like, I'm going to work on this anxiety thing. I'm going to work on my depression. I'm going to get up every day and be a fucking, I'm going to be fucking happy today. God damn it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it was a lot more complex than that. Um, with the anxiety, I just had to learn a lot about it. I remember watching some series on Netflix. I think it was called The Emotional Brain or something like that. It was this great series that just showed how our brain responds to stimuli and and it showed evolution stuff that was really fascinating. I don't believe in evolution. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I learned about how you can rewire your own brain. You absolutely can. There's a plasticity to uh, to the human brain. Yeah, and I realized that I my entire life I had been rerunning these pathways of always going to the dark thing, always going to the negative thing, always going to the dark place. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just, because I, I can't really say that had a whole lot to do with the religion, because the religion was really about denying all of the dark things. So I think somehow I was fighting for the other side somewhere in there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, no, this really is awful. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Listen to me. And so that becomes this habit that only takes you down the road of just misery, of just being a miserable person all the time, you know? And I, after I got rid of my mother, I was like, I'm going to change that. Let's try to change that. Let's see if it'll work. So I did this thing where, and I had a, a, obtrusive thoughts syndrome. I had tons of obtrusive thoughts all of the time mm -hmm. um, that would just come in and take over my brain and spiral mm -hmm. me into this this panic attack. Well, mostly while I was driving, which was great. What were some of the thoughts? It would be, uh, often it would be old, embarrassing moments from the past. <laughs> I mean, the dumbest things, like, you know, saying hello to some boy in seventh grade and him not saying hello back. Like, things mm -hmm. like that, that I would just hang on to and replay in my brain, mostly while driving on the freeway, <laughs> to give myself a panic attack so I could pull over and get out of the car and pace around breathing. You know, I mean, just the dumbest stuff. So I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to try to not do that anymore. Let's see if we can not do that. Mm -hmm. And it took about six months of every time an obtrusive thought would come into my brain, just saying, no, thanks. I'm not going to do that today. No, thanks. You know, and it's not about denying your feelings. It's about recognizing that not every thought you have is a thought that needs to be addressed. Right. It's okay to just be like, you know what? I don't want to think that right now. I, I, sometimes I thank my brain for sharing yeah. or showing me a little sick movie in my head. I'll, yeah, sometimes for I'm, that. Yeah, sometimes I'm just entertained by it. By <laughs> Wow, look at the way my brain works. Yeah. And once you realize that you do actually kind of have control over this stuff and you don't have to just go, well, why am I thinking that? I mean, what, what does just that say about it. me? You can just, just witness be like, it. All right. Yeah, okay. That's nice. Move along. You yeah. Know? So I had about six months of really consciously every day doing that and getting up every day and saying, I'm going to have a good day. I'm just going to try to have a good, positive day today, which sounds so dumb and so Pollyanna. And you have to remember from what I come from, I mean, I grew up in New York City, 80s, East Village. Like there's nobody walking around St. Mark's Place in the 80s going, I'm going to have a good day today. Like that mm -hmm. just wasn't my culture. You know, mm -hmm. my culture was dark and heavy and death and destruction. Yeah, especially the village in the 80s. I mean, yeah. AIDS was just taking yeah, so many around, lives. Absolutely. And, and, and drugs and heroin. And, you know, it was a dark place. And that was my those were my formative years. <laughs> I, mean, I came up with that and Christian science on top of it. I mean, how <laughs> fucked can you possibly get, you know? 
So well, you can go buy real estate in Louisiana five days yeah, before uh, you know, Katrina. And then have your identity stolen and your car smashed. So I, I really, I decided mm-hmm. that I wanted to be different. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I don't know how much time I have left here. And I want to have a good day for once. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you had a, a day where you went, wow, I did what I set out to do? I don't remember specifically, but I do know that after about six months of this, it worked. You know, it it worked. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's not to say, again, I I still have the anxiety issues. I still have bouts of sort of light depression. Um, Well, then you're a failure, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) But I... I, I just, it's my new thing. My new thing is I'm going to be happy, damn it. You know? Do you remember the first time you took a pain pill and felt its effects and, and didn't feel guilty that you took one? I don't remember the first time, but I do know that medicine in general was just magical to me. You know, the fact that, because I, I would always think, again, not understanding anything about medicine. I still don't know a lot about it. Um, I would be convinced that, well, I could take this pain pill, but, you know, it's going to have some side effect. I mean, I'm going to, you know, like my my toes will turn blue or something will Mm -hmm. fall off or there has to be something that's bad Mm -hmm. about it. Right. And I realized, no, it's actually just all okay. (laughs) Nothing bad happens. The same thing happened when I had my first son. Of course, I was never vaccinated. So when I gave birth to my first son a few years ago, uh, they were all very concerned <laughs> that I'd never had any vaccines. And right after he came out of my body, they're they're like, okay, we need you to get the whooping cough vaccine. We need you to get this. We need you to get this. And I knew that for I yourself needed and for him. myself. Yeah, and him. Um, and I knew that it was the right thing, but I was scared, you know, because I was just convinced that, well, what if I have some reaction? What if I start convulsing or what do I do? And I actually had to call in a doctor and I, I said, you know, this is going to sound crazy, but I was never vaccinated and I'm kind of scared. Can you just like tell me what to look for in case something goes wrong? Or, like, Good for you. You know, can you just explain it to me? And they were very kind. And, you know, they, they vaccinated me and it was just this little tiny needle. I didn't even feel it. And I was like, that was it? That was this <laughs> thing I've been terrified of my entire life that's been demonized for me? That was it? <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> and I had gone to India, I'd gone to Cambodia, I'd gone to all these crazy places with no vaccines, you know, because I was so afraid of them. And I thought, oh, I'll just take my chances. Ha ha. You know? Wow. And there was one point in India where I got, you know, the, the stomach upset that most mm-hmm. people get when they go there. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, I am such an idiot that I came here with no vaccinations. I could have just put my life on the line. Like, what was I thinking? You know? Again, lucked out there. The same way I lucked out in my childhood, never getting anything beyond the average yeah. cold, you know. We lucked out. My sister and I lucked out that we survived our Christian science childhoods without, you know, a mis- misset bone or a disease mm-hmm. or a, you know, lifelong maiming, which a lot of people have. It's very common, you know. I bet it feels good connecting to people on that message board, huh? It's the best. It's the best because I'd always wanted a support group for this, but there isn't one because it's a tiny, tiny little religion. And most of the people in it, they don't feel angry about it. They either sort of left like, oh, yeah, you know, it's still it's it's just all about God is love and it's cool and, you know, whatever. Like that's most people's attitude about it because they didn't Mm -hmm. have this this one two punch of like the withholding cold Mm -hmm. narcissistic mother and the religion that backed up all of her, 
you know, craziness. Yeah. It's a very passive kind of brainwashing. Yeah. Well, somebody said it's like Jonestown in slow motion, <laughs> which I thought was so great. Because basically what's happening is what's happening to our mother, which is everybody gets older, starts having tumors popping up and, you know, kidney stuff and diseases that happen in your 50s and 60s. And they go untreated and they just slowly die in these these facilities around around the world where they just rot away with giant tumors and medicare loves christian science well the funny thing is i think some of these nursing homes that they call them actually bill medicare which is horrifying because <laughs> there's no actual medical anything going on in there like not even band-aids they're just left rotting in these places i mean it's really it's 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 a horror show wow anything else you want to share um, I think I wanted to talk a little bit about parents who deny their children's feelings. Hmm. Super important topic. Yeah. And, and don't allow them to ever be upset and never make them feel like their feelings matter because they're just a kid. I think it's one of the most damaging things that you can... Yeah, do. because I do feel that that's not unique to my situation. I feel like a lot yeah. of people do that anyway. And again, it's a generational thing. I mean, I look at my mother, her childhood, she had an alcoholic father and a cold and withholding mother. So she had nobody either, you know, and that that created this monster. I mean, that mm -hmm. that's the story right there, you know. And so my mother, for all her faults, I mean, she she tried to be better. She was she was always incredibly supportive of me and my sister and what we wanted to do in our lives. She never made us feel stupid or like, oh, you can't do that. She was always super supportive. Uh, she exposed us to incredible culture and art and music. Um, she was always very supportive. I mean, she told me I was special. She told me I was pretty. She told me I could do anything I wanted to do. Those are wonderful things, you know, but then you pair that with every time I had a problem, oh, get a job. You know, just wait, just wait until you're an adult and you have to do things for yourself. Like everything just constantly shut down, never acknowledging that anything I was going through in school or with boys or anything mattered because it's like, oh, just wait, just wait. It was always that was the answer to everything. Just wait until you're grown up. I mean, that's you're just a kid. You know, that's nothing. Does it feel good when you are with your kids and you mirror back their feelings to them so it's, you know that they feel it's the right. most healing thing in the world and it's why i i had to have kids like i just could not not have kids <laughs> because i i was like i have to prove that i can be loving and nurturing and acknowledging of their feelings i mean my kids are little they're only three and one mm -hmm. and it is hard to acknowledge a two-year-old's feelings because they're upset about everything all of the time <laughs> <laughs> and i often wonder i'm like well i don't want to go overboard and yeah. like validate everything there are times when i'm like you know you kind of have to get over this you know this it's just the color of a cup i think you're gonna have to deal but uh that is the most healing thing on earth is to have a child who's upset because they fell or they feel sick, or or they're upset about something that happened with another little kid, and just saying, yeah, I know, that was hard, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't feel good. I know. Yeah, well, I love you, and I'm here, and we'll get through it together. And I mean, all those things I never heard. You know, when I hear you share that, I think it would be so easy to educate people with that, because I think 
most parents want to do and say the right thing. They just don't know. Yeah. They think that shutting it down is the way to handle it. Right. Just being like, ah, get over it. Just walk it off. They think that's the right thing to do. But I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't I don't either. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, every everything has its extremes that are unhealthy. But what you just the sentence that you said to your kid, it just sounds the easiest thing in the world to do. I imagine probably difficult for a parent who is filled with rage because they haven't dealt with any of their issues yet. But you clearly yeah. um, do. You, do you sometimes wonder? I wonder if I'd be able to genuinely say this and feel this for my child if I hadn't been to therapy or I hadn't done any of this other stuff. Yeah, if I hadn't done any of these things. Well, first of all, I never would have had these kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they would not have been possible if not this. None of this had happened with my mother. I truly believe that. Um, and I would have been just like her. You know, I would have been cutting and cut them down and not acknowledge their feelings, thinking that I was toughening them up for the real world, which I'm sure is what she thought with me. You know, I would have been just like her, you know, or worse, I would have been so the opposite that it would have been equally damaging. Yeah, (laughs) it's. It's got to be hard being a parent because on a certain level, you also want your child to have a realistic view of the world and to and to um, have to deal with adversity. Um, so I wonder how you deal with that as a kid uh, where, where you don't give them a distorted view of the way things work, but you also let them know that you're there for the, for them emotionally. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'll have challenges as they get older. Like I said, I'm kind of a baby parent at this point. Yeah. It's my oldest boy's only three, but um, already, I mean, we're at playgrounds a lot where he deals with social stuff mm-hmm. with other kids that can get pretty ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and already I could see that sometimes I just let the thing happen to him mm-hmm. and just say, yeah, well, that happens sometimes. This, you know, is, what, it, this is what Wall Street is like. <laughs> so get used to it. Yeah, if someone takes his toy or takes something he wants or I'm like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, that wasn't very nice. I know. But sometimes that things like that happen. And, and, and it's OK. Just if you think yeah. somebody's mean, just go away from that kid. Yeah. You know, when you grow up, the government's going to take a third of your toys. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anything else you'd like to share? Um, I think that's about it. Um, I know that, um, the Scientology documentary it was fantastic aired, and it was so great. And I had, of course, read that book many times. I'm actually reading it again right now because I'm a little obsessed because I mean, Christian science is not Scientology. They are different, but they're very similar, Yeah, <laughs> especially the part at the end with the mother whose daughter and grandchild, she had to sever, had to sever ties. I... I kind of freaked out a little bit. How so? Um, well, I watched this thing thinking, well, I already know what happens. I've read the book. Uh, I'm not going to be upset by it. But I was upset by that because the mother was so just painfully calm about it. She said, I just I just smelled her hair and hugged her and, and said goodbye. And that was it. And the thought of my children doing that to me, I couldn't survive that. And the fact that we did that to our mother and she's okay with it. You know, it just says that she's just in another in another world. You know, she's just doing her stuff and writing her autobiography and doing all these things. Her autobiography, which, by the way, 
barely mentions me and my sister at all. Has it been published? <laughs> I think she's self-published. Yeah. And it was actually something she wrote many years ago and had me proofread because I'm a little bit of a writer. And even back then, I knew I was like, yeah, we're, we're kind of not really mentioned in your autobiography. What's up with that? <laughs> And she got my sister's birth year wrong. She had the wrong year. Oh, my God. And I, I actually panicked for a minute, and I, I, I called my mother, and I said, have I been thinking all this time that my sister's 10 years older than me, but she's really 11 years older than me? Have I been wrong all these years? And she was like, oh, yeah, that I just, you know, I'm not good with dates. Like, you can't remember the year your first child was born? Wow. I mean, that just says that she's just off in this other world where we, we don't matter. You know, I don't think we even really hurt her that much when we left. I don't think she really cared. Amazing. Crazy. Amazing. <laughs> well, Hillary, thank you so much for coming and uh, sharing your story with us. I know there's going to be people, hopefully, um, who've been through something similar who will feel a little less uh, like a freak. Yeah. Yep. Because it's wow, it's what a what a difficult path to navigate. I mean, it, you you had no um, signpost to follow. You just kind of, I, I suppose you know you had your therapist helping you with it, but in many ways you just kind of felt your way out of the dark. Yeah, I definitely had no. Um no path to travel that it's some anyone else had, especially yeah. with this particular religion, which nobody's in. <laughs> you yeah. know. Well, thank God for the internet because I yeah. think it's a lot, a lot easier for people now. Absolutely. Give me, give me uh, a fear. Uh, okay, um, as as you know, I'm a single mother by choice, so my children mm -hmm. are sperm donor uh, conceived. So one of my big we fears, haven't even talked about that. Didn't even talk about that. Uh, one of my biggest fears, though, is I'm afraid my children will hate me for intentionally bringing them into this world with no father because I selfishly wanted a family. You are getting right to it, right out of the <laughs> gate. No fucking around. No, I, no, I'm afraid that I'm gonna, you know, get in an accident on the freeway. Right to the, right to the heart. Um, give me another one. Uh, I'm afraid. My thinking everyone else is a narcissist makes me a narcissist. <laughs> I worry about that, too. Not about you, about myself. Yeah. Yeah. I know I do have some narcissistic traits, definitely. Yeah, I think I do, too. Um, I'm afraid if I have even one sip of alcohol, I will instantly become a raging alcoholic. That's interesting. You've never had a sip of alcohol? I've probably had a sip. Oh, okay. But that's about it. Okay. I've never had a drink. Yeah. Because of that fear, because my grandfather was one... And I know mm. that I have that addictive tendency. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just terrified of it. And people always joke around with me. I'm going to get you drunk. It'll be fun at your next birthday. We're gonna... I'm like, no, no, <laughs> that's not fun for me. <laughs> that's kind of horrifying, actually. Give yeah. me another one. Um, that's all the fears I wrote. Okay. Give me, uh, give me some loves. Loves. Um, we talked about this, but I love comforting my children when they're upset or hurt. And seeing how incredibly healing your mother's attention and acknowledgement can be. That's a beautiful one. Yeah. Uh, I love hearing my three-year-old sing Paul McCartney's Jet to himself in his room in the morning. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You're a big Beatles fan. She's, she's yeah. got a great Beatles uh, shirt on right now. That's Is that from, is that an album cover? You know, it looks like. It's Revolver era, the, the yeah. haircuts. 
Um, Maybe even help that era. Yeah, it's help era. It, it, this is sort of one of these thrown together Forever mm. 21 shirts. So I think it's they're mixing okay. a bunch of things that don't actually go together. Uh, yeah. Good day, sunshine, it says. Uh, and then finally, I love Lindy Hop. <laughs> I forgot you you are a uh, vintage kind of uh, enthusiast. You you make your living doing organizing Lindy Hop things, right? Events, yeah. Lindy Hop dance events. contests, and I sing with a, a a jazz band, like a swing dance band, and it's incredibly joyful. You know, it's it's one of the most joyful things you can do is partner dance. And and especially this particular kind, which is very youthful and happy mm-hmm. and to great music. And uh, there's something very innocent about it, too. Mm-hmm. And and it, I find tremendous joy from that. That's awesome. Uh, did you have another lover? Is that your last one? That's it. Yeah. Hillary, thank you so much. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Hillary. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as uh, as much as I did. Um, because I love religious abuse. Before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways that you can support the show. Um, you can support us financially uh, by going to our website, mentalpod.com. You can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation. You can uh, commit to as little as five bucks a month, and it really, really helps the podcast. Um you can also use our Amazon uh, links, and if you're going to buy something at Amazon, just click on one of those uh, Amazon logos on our on our website, and uh, Amazon will give us um, some money if you buy something, and it doesn't increase the price for you. So that's a good way to help us financially, and you can uh, help us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about us, giving us a good rating, uh, or spreading the word about the podcast through social media. Enough of my yakking. This is an email I got from a woman who calling herself L, and she writes, um, "Someone had sent you an email uh, with the difference between laziness and depression. I was lying on my kitchen floor in the dark, and I said out loudly, "Buddy, you need to get to a doctor." I had started to suspect that my depression had returned with vigor around New Year's, but I kept trying to tell myself it was laziness. I had some clues. I rarely wanted to go to work and started fantasizing about calling in sick and staying home, but no one wants to go to work. That's normal, right? My latest electrical bill was around half what it normally was because I never cooked. I never did my laundry, and I pretty much just laid in bed in the dark. That's just good economy, right? Who wants to pay money for electricity? The email had said that you should think about doing something enjoyable, and if you still don't want to do it, you might be depressed and not just lazy. Well, at the beginning of March, I went on a trip to Cuba that I had been dreaming about forever. I went for just over a week and rode a bike around the western part of the island. It was amazing. I had I'd booked the trip in November and had been thinking about doing it for years. But right before, So right before my vacation, I started thinking about how much I wanted to not go, to not go on this amazing trip. I'd been dreaming about taking forever. I started trying to figure out how much it would cost to cancel my flight and the tour I'd booked. I just wanted to stay home, not leave the house, and have no one knew, no one know where I uh, that I was here. I was about to cancel everything until I realized people were going to want to see pictures, so I had to go. I love it when codependency saves the day. 
hearing the podcast, I knew I had to get my shit sorted out and I made an appointment for my doctor. I got into her office and immediately started crying. We talked about changing my meds and I weaned off what, what, I, was, what I was on and I'm getting on something new. I'm working out, getting sleep and eating at regular times. I'm not better, but at least I'm doing something about it and I wanted to thank you for lighting the fire under my butt. I've had depression for about as long as I can remember, but I am not prepared to get a, give into it yet. Uh, the biggest high five, whatever the biggest high five is that we have, uh, that's what we should, we should, all of us that experience depression, we should, that are working hard to just manage it. We should fill a stadium one day and then each of us gets to run through that thing that they hold in front of the tunnel when the team comes out and they burst through that big paper thing. Uh, I, I think that would be cool. I would, I would like... Uh, us depressives to be honored for a day for just fucking hanging in there every day. This uh, was filled up by Tweezerette, and she writes about her dermatillomania, waiting to be alone so I can be with my tweezers in peace. Uh, snapshot from her life, the relief of leaving work and driving home while tweezing my face, sitting in my car in the parking lot an additional 20 minutes so I can pluck my face before having to stop uh, until my partner is asleep. Uh, uh, the moment she is asleep, I reunite with... I'm not sure if there's a typo in there or I'm reading this wrong. Um, the moment she is asleep, I reunite with my tweezers and pluck my face until my hands are cramping. Wake in the morning and find a chin hair uh, when putting on my makeup. Repeat the cycle. On the bad days, I will pluck my chin hairs in public and cannot stop. Having my partner say to me, can you at least stop smoking a cigarette while you pluck your face and drive the car? My employees constantly ask me why I am touching my face uh, and mocking me, which only makes the obsession worse. That has got to be... I think there's so little understanding about that. Um, I don't think people understand that that's an addiction. Um... Bookner Jen sh shares an awful some moment with us. By 8 a.m. Slow the fuck down, Paul. But then everybody's going to leave me, mean voice in my head. By 8 a.m. That is a hard thing to say, by 8 a.m. By 8 a.m. I was having the worst day. My renter's insurance got canceled due to non-payment. My debit card, uh, the auto pay, was was on expired and the bank hadn't sent me a new one. Then my husband called and asked if I had his keys. They were in my purse from the day before. Uh, he had to miss taking his mom to Mother's Day brunch. My boss never turned in my absence report for my vacation day and I would therefore not be getting paid for it. As I then start to spiral into panic, I think it's okay. Just call the therapist and ask for another appointment this week and work through it slowly. Right then, my phone vibrates to let me know I got an email. It was my therapist informing me she had to cancel my next appointment and couldn't reschedule for a month due to a medical emergency. Fuck me. After staring at the email uh, for a while, I got up from my workstation and proceeded to eat three Hostess snack cakes while crying in my car. That is awfulsome. Thank you for that. I think that every building 
certainly places of employment, uh, you know, like the, the smoke alarm thing is behind the glass. I think they should have uh, snack cakes in case, in case of emergency, you break the glass and you sit down right there and you eat a snack cake and cry. Leah. Oh, no, this is this is a shame and secret survey uh, filled out by Leah, and she's 19. She is straight, and she only partially filled out the survey, so I'm just going to read what she has. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I think I grew up in a hypersexual environment with both of my parents having little to no boundaries when it comes to sexual content, like having porn on when I was in the room or full-blown making out in front of me, etc. My therapist says what happened was illegal and is considered sexual abuse, but I still don't feel sure. What you just described right there, yeah, that's that you would be taken from the home. Um, a child being exposed to pornography would be taken from the home. Um, she's never been physically abused, but she has been emotionally abused, which is not surprising given what your parents did. Uh, my stepdad will say stuff like, why don't you go and call a suicide hotline or uh, your mother are going to have a talk about you. I, I think she meant to include the I in there. Your mother and I are going to have a talk about you living with us, but he always ends it with, I'm just joking, and you're too sensitive. Uh, if I get upset, he needs to grow up. Um, yeah, he needs therapy and a lot of other shit. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, he'll buy me small gifts sometimes or give me rides every once in a while, which is nice, but then he'll use it as evidence that he's not a bad person and I'm just an ungrateful person. Yeah, he sounds like a terrible person. Sick and also terrible, but not as bad as me um, stumbling over words. That is the worst. It goes, me stumbling over words, Hitler, your stepdad. Darkest secrets. When I was little, I would act out sexual moves with my dad. He would laugh and encourage me to keep doing it. Yeah, that is really, really fucked up. I'm so sorry you experienced that, Leah. This is uh, filled out by Please Think I'm Cool. And she writes about her sex addiction. I want to fuck you so hard that I forget how much I hate myself and you and everything. Uh, that's a pretty good name for a song. Not sure how much airplay it would get, but... Uh, and about her bipolar disorder. I'm like a fairy from J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. My emotional range is so small, I can only feel one emotion at a time. But that emotion fills up my entire being and doesn't leave room for anything else. Beautifully, uh, beautifully put. Thank you. Thank you for that. Mike writes about his anxiety. No terror worse than the phone ringing and it's not a number I know. I would say, and it is a number I know. Uh, snapshot from his life. My depression caused my wife to wander. Caught her in an attempted infidelity talking about how much bigger someone else's penis was compared to mine. Now I don't feel like a man. I'm sorry that you experienced that, Mike, and um, that's fucked up, but that is no, that's no reflection on how much of a man you are. None. Um, this, this was filled out by Arf, the mailman, and a snapshot from his life 
is, uh, I can't connect with anyone. No matter how much I know I love my girlfriend, I can't feel it when I'm with her. I don't feel like I can trust anyone or relate to anyone. I feel incredibly alone and strange. Even though I know there are people like me out there, I feel like I'm doing my best to prop up a giant dam that is holding back all of my feelings, which are extremely strong and overwhelming. I want to cry, but I don't because it always comes over me when I'm in public or at work. I don't even cry in therapy. What the fuck is wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with you. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't need help and you don't need to go to to therapy like you are, but the, there's nothing wrong with you. I, I, it sounds to me like you're having a human reaction to living in a world that is filled with ignorance and cruelty and um, indifference, uh, but also beauty and love and kindness and connection and I think just try to seek out those positive things, but there's, you're not broken. There's nothing, you know, but I know that feeling, Mike. Oh, it's not Mike. Mike was the previous guy. Uh, Arf. Arf the mailman. Buddy, you are not alone. You are not alone. This is uh, an email I got from uh, Godfrey Lau, and he writes, uh, Dear Paul Gilmartin, my name is Mr. Godfrey Lau, an auditor working with a bank. I have taken pains to find your contact through personal endeavors because a late investor who bears the same last name with you, Andrew Gilmartin, has left funds totaling a little over $10 million. With our bank, and our bank is, uh, both those words are capitalized, I assume that that's the name of the bank, our bank, uh, with our bank for the past eight years and no next of kin has come forward all these years. To affirm your willingness and cooperation to my proposal, I will like you to get back to me as soon as possible and treat with absolute confidentiality and sincerity. Best regards. Um, this is This is the email I've been waiting for my whole life. But here's the catch. I hate the name Andrew, and I refuse to inherit any money from any fucking Andrew. Um, and I gotta be honest, I don't trust our bank. Um, but I do appreciate that he took pains to find me through personal endeavors. Uh, I don't know what personal endeavors specifically mean. Uh, does that mean that he tried to find me while he was out running errands, while he was shampooing his hair? Um, Godfrey, I'm going to have to think about this, but um, maybe find another Gil Martin. kind of wish that I'd closed on <laughs> something funnier than at last at last clunker. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Reginald, who uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you just by his name. Sounds English and aristocratic. He's in his twenties. He was raised in a stable and safe environment. Well, of course he was. Buckingham Palace is a fantastic place to grow up. Uh, he's never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally and physically abused. Um, he writes, "I had an ex." Uh, female, uh, beat the crap out of me weekly for years. It took years for me to accept that what had happened to me was actually abuse, but even now I feel silly to even bring it up. Um, and you shouldn't. 
you shouldn't because it is every bit uh, as serious. Um, and I have an episode recorded with uh, a male guest who um, was subjected to domestic violence by his female partner. And um, it is a real thing. And there are um, other men like you out there and and other women as well uh, where the abuser is is female. Uh, darkest thoughts that I would be better for my family if I wasn't it would be better for my family if I wasn't here darkest secrets I tell people I have committed suicide twice but it's closer to six times that I am slowly planning my seventh um, please don't please don't please hang in there Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Violence. I really like the idea of very violent sex. I want for it to be a very visceral experience. And writing that, I feel a little embarrassed. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? If you hadn't killed yourself, I would probably be fine. Um, my mom's father shot himself when she was 13. I feel this was a very formative event in her life that has affected how I was raised in more ways than I can imagine. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to be known uh, respected. I do not want to just drift away from people's minds. I wish, I would wish to not be forgotten. Have you shared these things with others? Eh, my therapist is decent. Uh, how do you feel after writing these, these things down? I like a fool. You're not a fool, uh, Reginald. And, um, I'm sending you some love, man. Just keep opening up. Just keep opening up. You know, a lot of times we, we think that we're never gonna we're never gonna get better. We're we're never gonna see daylight, and then all of a sudden one day something lifts a little bit, and there's change, and all of a sudden there's momentum. Um, why do they talk to me? Writes about his depression. Seeing every planned fun activity is a dreadful chore. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, give us a snapshot uh, from your life. I want to be invited to every party or event, but hate actually going. So I make excuse after excuse, and then eventually I'm not invited to anything. Then I feel like shit because I never get invited to anything. Fuck, I'm lonely. That is poetically beautiful. Thank you for that. That is. You just described you just described uh, so many of us, myself included. Jamie Sue uh, writes about her codependency. If I could do it alone, I would. That's a great one. Um, snapshot from her life. Three sexual assaults. I never cared until I was victim to a female. Betrayal is a tiny word for the size of emotion I'm still feeling. Really well put. Really well put. Thank you for that, Jamie Sue. Raised by Cats uh, writes about his anxiety. I'm going to die. Um, that I'm not too worried about, but I feel guilty that I won't be there to help clean up after the funeral. That is fantastic. Uh, about his bulimia, I eat frozen garlic bread because I cannot wait for it to cook. It's okay. It'll thaw in my stomach before I throw it up anyways. About his skin picking, I met with alarm at a job interview because there's blood running down my cheeks, but thank God the skin underneath is now smooth. 
about his PTSD. My blood runs cold and I have to scrape my knuckles along a brick wall to give me enough focus to remember my name again. About being a sex crime victim, I want to open them up with a scalpel to see what's so dark inside of them to think that it was okay to do what they did. About living with an abuser, when you scream at me, neither I nor the cats flinch anymore. Thank you for sharing that, man. Wow, that is heavy. That is heavy. Sending you some love. Uh, I hadn't done any of my loves in a while, and I was sitting in my favorite coffee place today, and I was like, I think I'm going to shit out some loves. And so I dropped my pants, and uh, and I made loves right on the floor. Here are my loves. I love the feeling of possibility and freedom being in a new city on the first day with nothing planned. I love the funk of Stevie Wonder's Sinclair in the song Superstition. I love getting the coffee shop's comfiest chair. I love when Ivy prances to another room like she's on a schedule. I love an unfrosted blueberry Pop-Tart and a glass of milk. I love when both of us apologize after a hockey fight and my soul feels cleansed. That happened to me just uh, two nights ago. This guy uh, and I got into it and... um, and he really fucked my thumb up. He cross-checked me really hard from behind. And uh, and I fell on my thumb. And uh, still, I can't really even make a fist. And and, his, and he got thrown out. And I got a roughing penalty. And uh, as I was leaving, stepping out of, off the ice to go to the locker room, uh, he had waited there. He could have just left um, the, the rink, but he was waiting there. And... Uh, he apologized to me, and it uh, I felt really good, and I thanked him for apologizing, and my soul felt soul felt clean. I like that. I like that feeling. I love an elegant mid-century piece of furniture made with subtly grained wood, like pear. If you've never seen pear wood, it's it's beautiful, um, but it's really subtle because you can almost can't see grain in it. Ah. Uh, I love driving my old car and knowing that whenever I do get a new one, I will feel like I earned it. I love remembering, uh, I love reminding someone how awesome they are and how much progress they've made and seeing their pain lift. I love when Herbert's head is coned and the way it swings back and forth when he walks like a sad little cowboy. Uh, I love the way a really powerful car engine manages to both roar and whine. And I love a top-end wood or auto shop where any idea can be realized because every tool is there. Thank you, Paul, for sharing your loves. Well, you're quite welcome. Oh, this is getting really weird, Paul. Let's break it up with a rock block. Two for Tuesday. Rocktober. Rockin' the Quad Cities. Enjoy the guess who. This is so dumb. It is so dumb. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, cancerous, but not really. She is in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional, highly religious house. She's straight. 
uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My dad left when I was maybe six or so, and my mom raised me. She always had me sleep in her bed, held me every night until I was in my 20s, and called it holding time. She made me straddle her from behind, unhook her bra, and scratch her back. In the mornings, she'd cuddle with me in bed like I was a partner, one leg draped over me. It wasn't until I moved out that I realized how fucked up that was. Yeah, that is sexual abuse. That's emotional and physical incest. And there is so much ignorance about it. And um, I'm sure you're, you're in your mom's mind, that's her sick way of connecting and loving you, but she is looking for you to fill her needs instead of the other way around. You know? Um, oh, that makes me sick. Uh, she's not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Well, you have been physically abused or uh, emotionally abused. That is absolutely emotional uh, and sexual abuse. Any positive experiences? My mom loves me. I just think she wanted a spouse, not a kid. Uh, darkest thoughts? I think about throwing myself into the subway train almost daily. I have yet to meet a person who experienced childhood sexual abuse, especially incest, that doesn't have uh, suicidal ideation. I've yet yet to meet one. Uh, darkest secrets? I've been obsessed with being six being sick since I was five years old. I used to stay up all night as a kid and pretend I was in the hospital dying. I faked cancer in college, shaved my head daily, falsified medical records, punctured and glued tubes and shit to myself, and tubes and shit, uh, didn't glue shit to herself, glued tubes and shit to myself and make it all convincing. I still don't know why. Um, I I'm going to venture a guess because you wanted to be seen and felt and heard because you weren't by your mom. You were used by your mom and you wanted empathy. You wanted somebody to nurture you. You wanted somebody to see and feel your pain instead of it always being about your mom. Um, and I hope you're not judging yourself for, for, for doing that. Um, I hope you're not still doing it and I hope you're talking to somebody about it, but, um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Public sex, always. Um, thankfully, my boyfriend tends to oblige in real life. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my boyfriend's ex-wife what a horrific bitch she is. She's keeping his son from him for no reason, and it's killing him. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish he'd choose me. Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? Nauseated. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're feeling nauseated. Um, but I think this is I think this is really fruitful stuff that you're that you're talking about. And the temptation is gonna be to not want to deal with this and to try to move away from it. But the only way around pain is through it. And um, you're not alone. You are so definitely not alone. And I have many female friends who experienced what you just described, and it really fucked them up. And um, I'm just going to take a wild guess, too, that there's a pattern in your life of choosing 
men who are emotionally unavailable and because that tends to be a pattern of people that have experienced incest and that relationships may be super intense but that's not necessarily um, intimacy. It's mistaking excitement for intimacy and um, my two cents. Michelle M. writes about her anxiety. Never being able to get anything done fast enough, choice becomes to do 100 things at once or completely avoid action altogether. Oh my God, yes. Snapshot from her life, gaining 20 pounds in college. My dad remarks, don't get any bigger. Within a year, I become anorexic. I'm convinced I'm simply doing what's best for my body by eating healthier and eating less, but my compulsive behaviors and obsessions cause me to take it to an extreme. At 103 pounds, I actually begin to believe I am happy with my body. I hear whispers that I, quote, look like a Holocaust survivor, and friends approach me claiming I have an eating disorder. My parents say, you're too skinny. You need to put on some weight. Make up your damn mind. Thank you for that, Michelle. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Ray S. And she writes about um, her OCD. I constantly bite my tongue every time I pass a telephone pole when I'm the passenger in a car. It's the the brain is just so interesting. That's so interesting. The ways that we deal with our emotions. Um, This is filled out by Kira. And she's a teenager, and she deals with depression, ADD, anxiety, OCD, suicidal ideations. Uh, And a snapshot from her life, she writes, I should not be struggling because my life is wonderful, but I am, and I can't constantly feel guilty for that. Um, Our emotional well-being is a part of what we judge our life quality to be. It's... Our life quality isn't based on the stuff that we have or whether or not there's a war going on in our street. It's, to me, the most important quality to judge our lives by. A lot of people who have recovered from drugs and alcohol would be the first ones to tell you that they may be poorer than they were before they got sober, but emotionally they feel wealthy. And I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people. I wouldn't trade my life... 15 years ago for anything. I had money and job security and I was fucking miserable because, and people would tell me how wonderful my life was and I would just think, you have no idea how badly I want to die. And I didn't understand is because I was emotionally bankrupt. I only cared about myself. I wasn't reaching out for any kind of help And my life was not wonderful because I was ignoring my emotions. So all of that is to say um, work work on that emotional part. This is an awful moment filled out by Aiden. And he writes, my psychiatrist got excited and started geeking out about how she'd never seen anyone with neurology like mine, who was as hard to diagnose and incompatible with as many medications as I was. She quickly caught herself and apologized, but I secretly took it as a compliment. <laughs> Thank you for that. I've experienced that before, too, and because I've tried so many things that haven't worked, and I always feel like 
I don't know. Like if there, like if mental illness were muscles, uh, I would, I would be at like Muscle Beach in a in a tank top showing off my biceps. Uh, when I think about all the different things I've tried that haven't worked, uh, this is filled out by your mom. Uh, it's a shame and secret survey. She is straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, she writes, we dealt with any sort of issue with silence. Feelings weren't discussed, and I was consistently told it didn't matter how I felt and was often punished for being, quote, too emotional. Boy, if there is a textbook, unhealthy, will-fuck-you-up type of environment, um, that is the one that she just described, and it is rampant in our culture rampant um ever been the victim of sexual abuse some stuff happened but i don't know if it counts a hard box to check i don't remember any sexual abuse i just have an overwhelming feeling that something happened um ever been physically or emotionally abused uh never been physically abused Uh, my parents spanked but it never felt like abuse Darkest thoughts, cheating on my husband, leaving him and my kids to live in a shitty apartment and work some shitty job just to be able to be alone whenever I wanted. Uh, Darkest secrets, when I'm manic during my electric boogaloo, uh, I spend, for the people that are new to the show, we call uh, bipolar 2 breaking electric boogaloo. Uh, I spend more money than I should. I'm not gambling the house away, just making many impulsive and small purchases, then regretting them to the point of shame and self-hatred. Right now, our house payment from last month is past due, and this month's is coming up. I'm the reason we can't pay it. My doctor tells me not to blame myself, to show myself grace, because during the manic part of my bipolar 2, the part of the brain that controls insight completely shuts down. But I can't not blame myself. I feel completely selfish, irresponsible, and like a burden to my whole family. Please listen to your, to your doctor. He or she is, is right. Um, what you do have control over is what you can do about your treating your illness that you do have control over which is doctor visits taking medication as prescribed you know trying to exercise talk therapy that kind of stuff um sexual fantasy is most powerful to you blah my meds have basically squelched any sort of sexual drive i've had i have to rally myself with pep talks to have sex with my husband i enjoy it when we have sex but haven't had a true orgasm in a really long time What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my mother, everyone thinks you are such a giving person, but I know you can't survive without a crisis to be in the middle of. It's how you get your self-worth. Your constant gaslighting my entire life has affected every single aspect of my self-image, self-worth, and view on life. Just because you don't purposely hurt someone doesn't mean you aren't responsible for your actions. Saying, I'm sorry you took that the wrong way, I'm sorry your feelings were hurt, is not an apology. It's still all about you. You are just as culpable in dad as leaving as he is. A marriage takes two and neither of you know how to communicate. What if anything do you wish for? For my bipolar two to be controlled by meds or fucking wizardry. I feel like I'll never be okay. The depression is soul sucking. The mania is shaming and self-hatred. Will I ever have a baseline for normal or is this it? The answer scares me. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I have a great circle of close friends, other women who love me unconditionally and are compassionate. My therapist is amazing. She knows all the dark and dirty. 
Uh, I tell her if she dies, I'll have to kill myself because I can't start over from square one with someone new. Yay, suicide jokes. I've shared these things with my husband, but it's hard for him to understand or to be very compassionate about any of it. Talking to him often makes me feel like my symptoms are character flaws. I'm sorry that your husband doesn't doesn't get that. Um, I'm really sorry, but that's so awesome that you have friends that support you and a therapist that gets you. That's huge. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad, teary, somewhat hopeless. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Therapy will change your life. Share what you can with people you trust and feel will be loving towards you. Telling people about your mental illness gives them the opportunity to love you, to check on you, and take care of you. When I first went to uh, into intensive outpatient treatment, I was very secretive because I was so ashamed. After a pharmacy error, which caused me to become suicidal, don't cut your Luvox back from 350 milligrams to 175 overnight, thanks for nothing, CVS, I opened up to my church family. Treatment was completely different after people knew. They brought meals to my family, had my children over for sleepovers when I was overwhelmed and consistently checked on me. A few weeks ago, I asked a friend to pick up my kids so I could take a nap. I felt completely self-indulgent to ask for help so I could sleep, but I was in a manic phase and had tons of energy in the early morning, but crashed for the day around one. She asked me if I was sick and I fell apart. I explained my symptoms, apologizing the entire time. She stopped me and said, you never need to qualify your illness for me. If you are having a day like today, you can just say you're sick and I'll help. The only reason I'd ever be upset is if I knew you were suffering and didn't ask me for help. Phew, tears. If I wasn't open, I'd be trying to do this on my own. And well, that shit just doesn't work. We heal together, not alone. God, I want to I want to find you and hug you. I want to I want to print what you wrote out on one of those airplane things and fly it around for everybody to see. And I'm so excited too that that you're having a positive experience with the people in your church because I know they're they're you know, organized religion for better or for worse is can be such extremes. It can be so healing and so profoundly life-changing in a positive way for some people and so damaging for others. And um, I'm just so glad that that you're surrounded by people who really are spiritual. What that woman said to you is one of the most beautiful things that I have ever heard. And... Uh, is it wrong to want to fly both of you in for a group hug? Would that be weird? I'd show you Herbert's butthole. You know we couldn't get through an episode without Herbert's butthole. Um, I, I thought I got to tell you, Herbert's cone kind of, kind of overshadowing his butthole. Because really, what is a butthole but a tiny cone? This is getting very weird. This is getting very weird. I'm making myself uncomfortable. Paint It Black writes about her depression. When my depression is at its mildest, it's like a theremin quietly wailing in the background of a sad song being played to a mostly empty bar by a band that everyone has forgotten. That is fantastic. That 
is fantastic. I'm going to fly you in. It's going to be a four-person group hug. Five of you count Herbert. Um, snapshot from her life. Being alone somewhere uh, dangerous in New York City late at night and walking without fear because if I were assaulted at gunpoint, my eyes would tell the assailant to just pull the trigger already and do me that small favor. Or would he not be able to because the whole thing hinges on someone wanting to live, so where's the rush in killing the person who wants to die? P.S. That was about nine years ago, and I'm now working towards managing my depression. Thank you for that, and I'm glad you're feeling better. You know, as down and dark as these surveys and the interviews and everything can be, I hope, I hope um, there's a kernel of light in all of this that, that reminds you guys that, it, it can get better, and it does get better. Um, and it goes in cycles, at least for me. And it's all about me. Anonymous Panda uh, shares an awful moment. As a child, I was... <laughs> oh, I just sometimes it's so... It just gets so heavy sometimes. Um As a child, I was sexually abused and raped by my older brother. Wow, that's still hard to write. As well, I've always been a giant geek slash nerd slash whatever you want to call it. My first crushes were Han Solo and Jean-Luc Picard in that order. My husband and I recently watched the newest Star Wars film at home. As we were watching, I paused the film and said, Han Solo was my first crush. Uh, Han Solo as my first crush makes so much sense. To which my husband replied, why? I responded, because he rescued Leia from her incestuous brother. For a moment, we stared at each other in horrible silence, then burst out laughing. It was the first time we ever joked about my abuse, and it was truly awfulsome. Thank you for sharing that. That's. I feel like that thing that you just shared is this podcast, what I attempt to achieve with this podcast in a paragraph. Like this, what I want condensed down into a paragraph. Explain that a third time, Paul. You are a terrible person. Happy moment from Astro Psycho. And she writes, uh, I told my boyfriend that it had been one year since I tried to kill myself. He put his arm around me and told me, congrats on a year of surviving. It was small, but it made me smile. I've never thought of it as anything uh, but failing. It's amazing how we can always just see something so easy to see. Mental illness makes it so easy to only see the negative. And your boyfriend sounds awesome. Uh, I don't know if this is the same person. No. Uh, this person also has an astro in their name. Astro Nymph shares about her PTSD. What's nice about disassociating uh, is the brief floating feeling that nothing around you is real. I am not even real for a second. Thank you for that. This is uh, a survey filled out by... I want to see where we're at time-wise. doesn't matter. It's my podcast. Herbert, we're going to go as long... So we fucking feel like it. I forgot to tell you, uh, Herbert is now uh, a producing partner on the podcast. 
And uh, his note every week is more treats. I'm beginning to think he's using me for treats. Um, Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself always depressed. She is in her 20s and bisexual, raised in a stable and safe environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was watched as I showered at age 11 by a dorm mother at a camp I attended. Experienced a semester of near-daily near back massages, unwanted, of course, from a high school music teacher, who I believe later was charged with possession of child porn. I reported this to the principal when he wouldn't leave me alone outside of class. Deeply regret not reporting it um, while it was happening in class. She's been emotionally abused. I feel fucking horrible. I am visually impaired and survived years of emotional torment at the hands of teachers of the visually impaired uh, I worked with in school. Students with a range of disabilities routinely are emotionally abused by their disability professionals of all sorts, many of whom can get away with their abuse because it happens behind closed doors. Fucking, fucking disgusting. The vast majority of this abuse was done by women. I am an unabashed and proud-as-fuck feminist and wish that more feminist spaces acknowledge the fact that women can be perpetrators of all forms of abuse. The power imbalances are fucking atrocious. No child should ever, ever, ever experience this fucking shit from a fucking adult. If you read this on the show, please emphasize that those listeners who are in helping professions, I am myself, need to do some serious work on themselves to ensure that they aren't entering their professions or aren't in them because they need to fulfill a psychological need to be needed through abuse, control, and manipulation of someone they think is socially or even inherently lower than they are, inherently less human. For fuck's sake, I believe strongly that the more we discuss this shit, the more we can heal, which is why I bring it up now. I want a real conversation to happen about this hidden abuse. Um, it is now a six-person group hug. And I got to be honest, the airfare is really starting to stack up, and uh, I'm going to need you guys to kick in some money. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I fell hard as fuck for a female social worker I saw in high school. This makes me feel all kinds of complicated about my queer identity. I fear falling for a woman who will turn out to be an emotionally abusive or manipulative person. I hate my internalized queer phobia and hate that these experiences sometimes make me feel glad I am not a lesbian Then I am often attracted to masculine of center folks. Darkest thoughts. Suicide. I will not act on it. I wish the thoughts would go away. Uh, that I'm inherently broken and worthless. That no one will ever love me. That I suck. That I'm selfish, etc. Uh, darkest secrets. Stuff with my brother I'd rather not get into. Um, sexual fantasies. Being a complete submissive. Ugh. Uh, anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to. I would like to be better at telling folks I'm interested in than I'm interested in them without feeling disgust over having feelings because of internalized ableism. I know so, so, so much better than that. What, if anything, do you wish for? For a decent mental health professional, instead of having to fight ableism every fucking time, I try to take care of my mental health. I feel like I spend more energy taking care of the therapist than I do getting therapy, which is why I dropped my last therapist after a year of trying really damned hard. Have you shared these things with others? The therapy stuff, yes. Everything else, no. How do you feel after writing these things down? Pretty fucking awesome. 
Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Internalized ableism is a fucking, fucking, fucking horrible evil monster. To any and all listeners who identify with disability, know you are not alone, that we are awesome as we are, that a lot of us have a lot of trauma to heal, uh, and that we shouldn't be ashamed to heal. We can live wonderfully happy lives. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I love when you guys fill out a survey that's unlike any other one that, that I've uh, read before. And um, I love your passion. I love a good feisty survey. Uh, lost my place. Happy moment filled out by I forget Forgot My Nickname. And she writes, uh, sometimes I used to go stay with an old friend when I was really depressed and he would go to work and make food and just let me be there. He had two smart sheepdogs, a male and a female. One day I was sitting on the couch alone, numb, dead, and the male dog climbed up and sat upright by me and leaned against me. His warmth and weight felt like such solace. When my friend came home, I told him and he was really amazed. He never does that, he told me. I felt so good that the dog came to me and broke his pattern for some reason and maybe liked me and sat with me. I can still feel him. Uh, and her other happy moment, I, I remember once laughing with the therapy group in a hospital discussing when one should tell one's new love interest why they take 38 pills a day and on which date. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, I forgot my nickname is 71 years old and uh, I love... I love uh, hearing from our uh, our listeners uh, who are older because I know, and especially um, older women uh, feel so ignored in our society. So, uh, you know, it's like once they're beyond the age that the media uh, thinks is interesting about them, they're just invisible. Uh, there's a woman at, at my gym that um, I talked to about this. She's uh, she's six, 65 and um, it's um, it's got to hurt. It has to hurt. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Carly and uh, her issues are anxiety and PTSD and a snapshot from her life, going out for pizza with friends and my partner and slowly shutting down with each new conversation that arises. Every word said over dinner adds an invisible weight to my chest, simultaneously rendering me unable to respond and then hating myself for not being strong enough to actively participate in this social gathering. I spiral down quickly into a state of self-loathing and despair right there in the restaurant. Everyone slowly begins to notice my shoulders slump and my face darken, and the only thing I want is to be 500 miles away from this place. I am so embarrassed and exhausted and do not speak for the rest of the dinner. The silver lining? My partner and I left, and he listened to me sob and recount what was happening inside of me during dinner. He offered his support and a huge bear hug. I still felt disconnected, but his response was like being rolled into a warm blanket in an unrelenting snowstorm. That's a that's a either a happy or an awfulsome moment right there. But that just um, thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Gooseman thirty four. 
He's straight in his 30s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Some older uh, older girls by a couple years experimented with me, uh, really only heavy petting. Um, I always hate that term, heavy petting. It feels so 50s, but uh, I mean, what else do you call, call it? You know, jerking, slapping, and finger blasting? Who? I think we're the first British power trio. He has never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, no positive experiences with the abusers. Often at my lo- darkest thoughts, often at my lowest, I contemplate suicide, which makes me even sadder. What makes me even sadder is I don't feel too many would even notice if I was gone. Darkest secrets. I've been married nine years and have cheated four times. Two times my my wife knows about. Um you know, there might be uh, a relationship between the stuff that happened uh, when you were a kid with those older girls and um, the cheating stuff. A lot of times that that is a really common behavior of people who were uh, sexually abused in, in childhood or had unwanted, overly um, kind of overwhelming sexual experiences. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I'm really into anal sex with women and anal play on me I feel weird about it because it's kind of taboo uh, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to I wish I could tell my dad I love him and I hope you're proud of me he died 16 years ago when I was 17 you know what uh, this sounds a little cheesy but what a lot of therapists uh, recommend is writing a letter to that person who's no longer around. And um, I've written letters that uh, have been very cathartic for me, letters that I never send. Um, What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could have my dad back or have more time with him. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, reluctantly, because I didn't want to make them sad, too. And that is such a big reason why we keep shit in is we're so afraid of other people's burdening them with our emotions. You know, there's there's a continuum of, uh, you know, there's there's shutting completely down and not letting anybody know what's going on with you. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is it's constantly about you. You're constantly talking about your drama and you're not taking any advice or input um, from anybody that you're sharing this with and it's the same conversation over and over again. And those are rare. The majority is stuff that's in between, which is fine and healthy, which is having conversations with your friends. And some days it does need to be all about you. But um, I have the feeling you're so far from making it all about you that... um, you know, I go back to that survey that I read uh, a little while uh, ago on the podcast. I think it was six days ago. Because <laughs> this podcast, this episode, is about six days in length. Where um, that friend said to, to her, I would only be upset with you if you did need help and you didn't call me. For a second, I thought Herbert was it's a motorcycle outside. I thought it was Herbert. Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences I don't know if there is anything to say 
to someone who's gone through that. You love them, and you're there for them, and um, if they ever want to talk, you'd love to listen. I think I think that's that'd be a great thing to say. We're almost done. We're heading into the home stretch. Oh, we're not that long. We're just a little over two hours. I was panicking. Thought I might have overworn my welcome. This is filled out by Successful on the Outside, and she writes about her depression. Tired in a seeping into the bones kind of way. Highs are gray and lows are so black it's impossible to see my hand in front of my face. About her bulimia, the rush of equal parts catharsis and self-disgust as I watch the last half hour of sins disappear with one flush. About her OCD, eight years old, up for hours because I can't fall asleep when my breaths are on an odd number. Thank you for that. I'm really eloquent. This is an email I got from a woman who wants to be referred to as uh, Lena. And she writes, um, When you read the surveys, I heard multiple times that women wrote about their sexual fantasy, that it's their boyfriend or husband cheating on them. We've actually also had many where uh, men... Um, write about the their female partners, uh, and they are hurt by it, but at the same time, it makes them very horny. I have the same thing. Since I found out my boyfriend almost and maybe really cheated on me, uh, but for sure he switched nudes uh, with a girl and jacked off while texting with her, I was so incredibly hurt by this, but it's now my number one sexual fantasy, and I always have to think about it when I'm masturbating. I'll have an orgasm very fast with this fantasy, but directly after it, I'm getting all this, uh, these memories again, and I'm in this hole again. I broke up with him because of this in a couple of other similar cases. I only, I only want to forget him, but I still always have to think of this hurtful fantasy. Do you know why that's even a thing? Um, what is the problem with me that I'm actually getting horny out of this disgusting, disrespectful, and hurtful fantasy? Do you have any advice? And I wrote her back and said, the only advice I have for you is to not beat yourself up about it. Our sexual fantasies can be very, very confusing, complicated, and maddening. I've never, I never used to have a fantasy about being molested until I confronted what my mom did to me. Uh, I was 48 when I realized what she uh, did really was sexual abuse. Um, I didn't think it could be because there was no, she never touched my penis that I remember. But I was in so much pain, I wanted to die. And guess what? I suddenly had a sexual fantasy of being 11 years old again and being molested by either a babysitter or a mom. It was all I could think about and when I masturbated, uh, all I could think about when I masturbated. I realized that this was my brain's way of trying to go back and fix what happened to me, a way to regain the control that was taken from me. And that fantasy wasn't hard enough, if that fantasy wasn't hard enough to deal with, I then began thinking about tricking my mom into watching me masturbate. And that is still sometimes a fantasy I have. Yet I don't want it in real life, so go figure. But the bottom line is this, let's not judge ourselves. We have enough on our plates. And I know many, many people who share the fantasies that you and, uh, and I have. What you subject yourself to in your fantasies, being molested, cheated on, degraded, raped, etc., are no indication of your morality or self-esteem. 
they're just there, like freckles. Learn to accept them instead of wishing they would go away, because wishing fantasies doesn't make them go away. It only brings shame into the equation. Maybe a future partner will be able to incorporate those into your sex life, not cheating on you, but you describing to him the situation that's turning you on in your head. Sharing our inner thoughts with a partner can be a great way to build intimacy with them and build trust. Plus, it can be really fucking hot. I always feel a little weird when I read what I wrote back to somebody. It feels like I'm, uh, I don't know, like I'm quoting myself, which really I am. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by, oh, our friend Astronymph. Uh, she writes, um, I'm a rape survivor, and the man I'm dating uh, the other day said, I don't want you to be scared uh, so we can do whatever weird stuff makes you feel good. It sounds like he was coming from a really good, sweet, sweet place. The word weird might have uh, not been the greatest choice, but it sounds like a good egg. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by insert quippy nickname here. She writes, my grandma's funeral was a week ago. Since she had outlived most of her friends, as most 92-year-olds do, we opted for a small graveside service. About 10 of us gathered in the cemetery in what seemed like a movie scene version of a funeral setting. The day was gray, cold, rainy. We were all huddled together under a maroon wall-less tent, trying and failing to keep warm as a well-intentioned pastor droned on about the one way to God in a badly timed effort at converting my secular half of the family. I tried my best to focus on the love-oriented intent behind the words, but was less than successful. Into this moment stepped an acquaintance of my grandma's. She had barely she had bravely accepted the self-assigned duty of providing the musical entertainment for the event. She explained while removing her personal tablet from her bag that her son had shown her how to use Vimeo the previous week. After a moment of app finding, she was able to na navigate her way to the video she wanted. It began with a 30-second commercial for bounty paper towels. There was no skip option. I could barely contain myself. I turned to my brother and whispered, Grandma's funeral brought to you by bounty paper towels. He shifted where he stood, avoiding eye contact and keeping a masterful poker face. The ad led into a Celtic or Celtic uh, woman rendition of Amazing Grace, complete with three key changes, one set of bagpipes, a full orchestra, and an onstage chorus. So there we stood, silently shivering in the rain, as Celtic woman played over the world's tiniest set of tablet speakers. Around minute five, my mom attempted to move the proceedings along, saying the kind of thank you usually reserved for the end of unsuccessful auditions. With tears in her eyes, my grandma's acquaintance gave a dramatic, non-sarcastic, you're welcome. Believing that her profound tribute had hit its mark and we had all been sufficiently moved by the depth of her love for our family member, she decided to try to end the video early. Her son hadn't showed her how to stop videos. As a Celtic woman went on in yet another hierarchy, she swiped, dragged, and poked at her tablet. Eventually, my cousin stepped in, stopping the song. The funeral progressed. We shared memories. My grandma's friend played another song, some kind of Christian rock love song with lyrics displayed across the screen and a 1980s color scheme. We all said our goodbyes and left. My brother and I drove in silence away from the grave site. 
As we passed out of the cemetery gates, I turned to him and asked, Well, what did you think? Without missing a beat, he looked over at me and said, It was a wonderful tribute. Bounty is an extremely absorbent paper towel. That was so well written. If you're not a writer, you could definitely be a writer. Um, great storyteller. And then finally, this is a happy moment um, from Aster Says Hi. And she writes, I love it so much when my old dog is asleep at the end of the day, and she is so tired I pick her up to carry her to bed, and she is all squishy and warm and relaxed and so trusting that I will take care of her. I love putting my face against her soft, velvety ears. I love that I have that responsibility and feel confident that I can make her safe. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you, guys. Thank you for being my buddy, my buddies, on this difficult, crazy, winding road of mental illness and trauma and awfulsome and I hope you heard something in the podcast that helps you. I hope. I hope you can, if you're sitting there just so afraid to ask for help, that you heard something in today's podcast that just helps break through that fear and uh, helps you reach out to somebody or find a therapist or open up to a friend or go to a support group or just write your maybe write your thoughts down your feelings down just get a pen and a paper and just start writing what you're feeling that can help sometimes um but i hope you i hope you do it and i hope you remember you're not alone and uh thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way